Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. As government research into UFOs has either been poorly funded, non-existent or clandestine, it's largely fallen to private individuals to research the phenomena. One such investigator is Bill Konkoleski from Michigan. So the Mutual UFO Network is the world's largest civilian UFO research organization. We're based primarily in the United States, but we're in 40 countries. We have over 4,000 members worldwide. And what we do is we investigate UFO sightings. People report sightings to us almost exclusively through our website. An investigator will reach out to the witness and pick up the conversation where the the report form left off in terms of details. And there, between the report form and the conversation, they can determine length of time the witness saw it, what the object or light looked like. Though The investigator checks on things like weather, air traffic at the time, and celestial objects, everything that seemed may seem pertinent to the type of thing that the witness is reporting. If the investigator needs to go to see the witness, that's an option, but it's not something that's often done because it's not like the UFO is a repeating phenomena in most cases. So just a conversation or multiple conversations between the investigator and the witness to try to look at every possible aspect of what it might have been is sufficient. And we are pretty good at what we do. We are an all-volunteer army, but still almost everything that comes into us, we're able to identify a good 85 to 95%. When we can't identify it, we call it unidentified. We don't say unidentified, possibly a secret military aircraft, possibly reptilians from the Pleiades or something like that. That's mm-hmm. that's way beyond our scope. As an organization, we either identify it or we call it unidentified. Another well-renowned researcher is Robert Schaefer. My most recent book is called Bad UFOs, and you can get it on Amazon. And I also have a website with that same name, badufos.com. I try to stay up to date on all the things that are happening with... Uh, the Pentagon UFO and the different UFO cases and the different claims. As the title of his book implies, Schaefer is a skeptic. My mentor was Philip J. Klaas, who is uh, very well known as a premier debunker. If ufology was a religion, Philip J. Klaas would be Satan. And as a skeptic, Schaefer has a very different approach to deciding which stories to investigate when compared with Bill and Mufon. You know, there's so many, uh, so many sightings in so little time that one has to apportion it 
in a useful way. And the way to do that is that MUFON and all the other groups and all the well-known people have been promoting a certain case. And if a case is getting publicity, then if I'm to be an effective skeptic, I have to address the, the cases that people are you know, hearing about and are concerned about. One such highly publicized incident was the so-called Phoenix Lights, which the Arizona governor described as otherworldly. There's a very, very famous case from uh, 1997 uh, in uh, Arizona, over much of Arizona. But it were two separate incidents, and the media loves to just confuse them and run them together, and they'll show photos from the later incident where they're talking about the earlier incident, and, you know, so people think, oh, golly, it is so, it's so amazing. I think most of the reasonable investigators agree that the second part of the incident was uh, a flare drop. The Air National Guard, they have a training program each year in uh, Tucson. And as part of that, the Air National Guard goes out over this range and they drop flares. When they drop enough of them and there's enough people watching, it's very, you know, uh, spectacular. And those are the ones we usually see, like, uh, they're hanging in the air, like, in a row coming down. That's, you know, people say, those are, okay, that's the second incident. But the first incident, they say, was a flying triangle. Actually, it was was a, a formation of, Air National Guard aircraft going to the same destination, Tucson, to the um, uh, Davis Mountain Air Force Base. But they were flying in probably from Vegas in formation with their formation lights on because people were outside to look at this comet because this is when that comet Hale-Bopp, I think it was, uh, that was uh, so easily visible and so bright at that time. People came out to look at the comet and they said, what's this flying triangle? Well, it's airplanes in formation that you don't see too often. And, but, you know, people make all kinds of mysteries about this stuff. Some people say they had telepathic contact <laughs> with, uh, with uh, the, the aliens or with, the, with whoever was inside there. So, yeah, it, there's just any number of examples of this where they, they, the media will peddle the story. And, and there are some people who are really almost like full-time, you know, UFO uh, promoters who write uh, about this and, you know, appear on TV shows and... It's, uh, you know, it's almost, a, it's almost an occupation for them. Beyond optical illusions and misidentified conventional objects, UFO researchers also have to contend with hoaxes. Just a whole lot of that going on. It doesn't even take a great sophistication to do this. Uh, there are some people who are, are very, uh, very good at looking into this. Uh, Scott Brando, who is uh, in Italy and uh, is, uh, has a, a UFO a Facebook site called, and a website called UFO of Interest. He goes into all these videos that get posted, many of them to YouTube. And it's it's a lot of the same ones, you know, the same, the same. Uh, for example, this uh, third phase of Moon is a, is a video channel on YouTube, and they have all kinds of, they specialize basically in very, very loopy hoaxes. If somebody sends, I don't think they make their own hoaxes, but, you know, if somebody sends them a hoax, they'll, they're happy to run with it. So, Right. And some of these things, are, it's incredible. They're, they're, they're actually like movie production ads from other countries. You know, it might be, you know, oh, look at the UFO, that's amazing. And then somebody says, oh, that was an ad for a movie in, you know, or a TV show in Sweden or something, you know. So uh, people are just putting this kind of stuff out there all the time on YouTube and, and the other social media. The Phoenix Lights, despite widely accepted explanations, continues to get extensive coverage on TV shows and documentaries, alongside Roswell and the supposed underground alien base in Dolce, New Mexico. But Robert Schaefer isn't alone in questioning some of these reports. As I discovered, 
when I asked Bob Konkoleski about the Dolce base and ideas that the US government have obtained alien technology. I am not the conspiracy guy, necessarily. When I see the, the evidence of, of these black budget projects allegedly having these secret bases, and when I you know, hear the investigators that focus on these types of things primarily tell their stories, you know, I listen. I'm not completely sure if I buy into everything 100%. When you look at computers, 1969, the year that we landed on the moon, how far computers have gone. I mean, this on my wrist is more powerful than these computers that took up a whole room. So computers are have taken an amazing leap. But if you look at the corresponding aircraft or the space program and compare that sort of curve, technological curve upward, you don't see anything near what just basic household computers have taken us. It's like they talk about they're going to go back to the moon. They're going to talk. They're talking about going to Mars. I guess they can do it, but we haven't done it in 50 years. And the space program, some space shuttles, I guess those were okay. The space station out there, all right. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, you got some share time floating around in orbit, but nothing really that exciting uh, compared to just, you know, if you just look at computers in general. So are these things simply not being created and, and, and researched and everything like that? Or is it that we don't know about it? And I tend to think that the fact that we don't know about it is the more likely option. One small example of that is the stealth helicopter that crashed in Pakistan when they were after bin Laden. The stealth helicopter didn't exist until, oops, one crashed, and yeah, it's kind of a thing. So, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, I would almost use the word obvious that a lot of exotic aircraft flying around in the sky are, are what we're seeing as uh, and getting as UFO reports. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, the, the governments that are developing these types of aircraft are, are holding their cards, you know, close to their chest. Now, that, that much of conspiracy, I think, is fairly easy to buy into, if conspiracy is even the right word for it. But when you talk about bases underground there where aliens are working alongside with people, just, I just don't know about that. In order to keep a conspiracy under wraps, you need to have enforcers. And in some quarters of the UFO community, these individuals are real, and they're called the Men in Black. Robert Schaefer, though, is far from convinced. (laughs) Well, I I know too much about how it began to possibly ever believe it. It was our good old friend, Gray Barker, who, who I actually knew him. He died almost four years ago was a writer who wrote you know sensational interesting stuff about mothman we have basically we have two things that we would not know about if it wasn't for or at least they wouldn't be famous if it wasn't for gray barker one is a mothman and two is a man in black this was just a ridiculous story in fact it had been made up not by barker didn't even make it up himself this other guy it was just a story that was circulating <laughs> and in fact, in this book that Gray Barker wrote, uh, they knew too much about flying saucers. Uh, it's about the men in black. And he talks about how, like, all these people are supposedly silenced. James Mosley was supposedly silenced by the men in black. 
Well, I knew Mosley also, and, and you know, it was a joke. And, and I asked him, were you silenced by the men in black? We've been talking for years, and I didn't notice that you were silenced. He said, oh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> of course it's a joke. It's a very silly thing. Because when you look at all the people who are talking about UFOs, now, if it's true that the men in black are trying to silence people, you know, Betty Hill talked for, I don't know, 40 years after her experience, kept talking about nothing else except UFOs. Why didn't the men in black silence her? Or you know, any of these other people who are, you know, telling about their stories over and over again. Why didn't they silence Travis Walton? <laughs> the conspiracy theorists tend to occupy a lot of airtime that detracts from efforts by investigators simply trying to explain odd occurrences. But I wondered if this aspect of ufology was unique or if it was a broader societal issue. It's a question I put to historian Greg Akigian. Conspiratorial thinking it has its own long history. It too is something that preceded the, the UFO phenomenon. So, so in, in some ways you can say that all that happened was the, the UFO story and phenomenon got folded into pre-existing notions of conspiracies. And it happened very quickly. It, within a few years, that became one of the central stories that circulated in the UFO world. Um, and in fact, many, many people for, for, uh, make that really the main focus of their research. They, they don't really study UFOs. They study what they consider to be the conspiracies. Um, I, I think that, that in a sense, you could say it was almost going to be inevitable that people would wonder about conspiracies because the whole phenomenon of UFOs revolved around things that are in the sky that the government may not want us to know about. And we know that many times people back in the days saw, in fact, uh, uh, experimental aircraft that they that the government didn't want people to know about. Right. So the government keeps secrets. And when you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. While stargazing and looking for strange objects may be a fun pastime, a darker aspect of the UFO phenomena gained widespread attention in the last few decades of the 20th century, abductions. Reports of people being kidnapped by aliens and being subjected to experiments. Bill Konkaleski has written two books about his own experiences in this realm, Experiencer, Raised in Two Worlds, and Experiencer 2, Two Worlds Collide. As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. I've had some very strange upfront and personal encounters with, after all these years, I, I don't know what. My very first memory, age two, is of a little gray guy coming up to the crib and looking at me. This isn't a memory that came back several years later, like, hmm, I think that might have happened a few years ago. Or at the moment, it burned in my memory. This little thing came in the room. I was awake in my room. It was nighttime. I screamed for my parents. My mother told me just to go back to sleep. She didn't even come in the room. And I hadn't even been asleep yet. And she's telling me to go back asleep. Then this little guy came, looked down over me at the crib, and then walked out. And I'd seen that entity a number of times growing up. And I was born in 71, so 50 now, and that was age two, so 48 years ago. Uh, communion was that big.
big wake-up call for me, that that book that came out in the late 80s of Whitley Strieber, and you see that thing sitting on the bookshelf at the local bookstore, that was where I finally was able to put things into context. I'm like, oh, so this could be alien. And it wasn't a one-off event. At age seven, was taken aboard, and I got a scar on my arm that I still have. They put me in a chair and sliced my arm and then I watched it heal while it right after they had made the cut and the next day I'm in the backyard wondering how I got the scar I'm in the backyard playing in the trees with a, a neighborhood boy and the uh, I was seven he was six at the time and this mist rolls into the backyard and we thought oh my gosh there's a fire or something and it was just like like stage fog. It was a very light mist. And in that mist, there was a little gray being who asked me, who walked up to me within the mist and asked me how I was doing. I said, you know, I'm doing fine. And it seemed satisfied and it continued to walk in this mist of cloud rolled with it. My friend who I'm still in touch with, he never saw the being in the mist, but he saw the mist. In my teen years, I was having many experiences. I was uh, hesitant of them now. They seem to have taken a lighter tone with me when I was younger, but now in my teens, they were more serious, more business-like. Let's get down to what we got to do. And that is when I saw the mantis being uh, for my first and only time. This taller entity looked like a praying mantis dressed in this sort of almost absurd robe. Uh, very powerful, menacing feeling energy about it. And, and the being was trying to convey to me, he seemed like he was upper management to these greys somehow. And he, was, uh, and he was trying to convey to me, you have to do what these guys tell you to do. I mean, he was there to, to sort of scare me straight, so to speak, like, you know, do what these guys want you to stop messing around. And it was, it was, it was a terrifying encounter. Bill's account is extraordinary. But similar reports have occurred elsewhere. A Swedish researcher, Klaus Svahn, explains. It's not as common today as it was in the 1970s or 80s. But nowadays, you for Sweden get very, very, very few reports of entities. Uh, in the 70s, when I started to, to get my interest, uh, it was quite widely reported that people had met creatures or entities or aliens, or whatever you want to call them. Something has happened, I think. And you don't get too many observations uh, close up, as you did in the 1970s either. Nowadays, uh, the 300 observations we got here, most of them were just uh, specks of light in the sky and very, very bad pictures and films. In the 1970s, you got uh, films and mostly pictures, of course, of really what looked like bona fide uh, crafts. Most of those pictures have turned out to be fakes. But Greg Ekin has, has looked really into the history of so-called abductions, during, during and like Klaus Vaughn, has found it to be something longer-lasting and more prevalent in the United States. It's difficult to quantify. There was an attempt, if I recall correctly, it might have been in the 80s or 90s, I can't recall, when a survey was commissioned by one group to try to quantify it and came up with a figure that 
that maybe as many as several million Americans have had experiences that fit under that category or rubric. People have long have since criticized that survey and right. felt that it was was flawed in many ways. So it's difficult to quantify. What we do know, however, is that over the course of the 80s and 90s, the phenomenon known as alien abduction or and the people who've had those experiences who by the 90s start referring to themselves as experiencers, this phenomenon and these folks start to become way, way more prominent in public mm-hmm. discussions, and they become more prominent in ufology. They do, especially in the United States. And one of the more interesting things is that as that began to take shape and take hold in the 80s and 90s, you kind of got some blowback, not just from skeptics in the United States, but you got blowback actually from, say, European ufologists. I've talked with some veteran ufologists there, and they talk about how in the 80s and 90s, they were shaking their heads, saying, mm-hmm. what on earth has happened the Americans. The phenomenon has been common enough to occupy now a a relatively permanent place Mm -hmm. in ufology and UFO conventions. But many, many people who, who consider themselves ufologists themselves are quite skeptical about these claims. The challenge for a lot of people, myself included, is that if you see a UFO, you don't have to make the leap and suggest that it's alien, but you can accept that right now, you don't have a good explanation for what it is. Direct physical contact with aliens takes things a step forward. Bill Konkoleski, as an experiencer and researcher, has been on both sides of the issue, as he shares his story while investigating others. He's certainly not immune to the scepticism, or the suggestions that reports can be explained away by sleep paralysis or other factors. Well, I think what some of what people report are the paralysis, either in the hypnagogic or hypnotic states of sleep. And there can be some imagination confabulation. All sorts of people will say all sorts of things. And people will, just in the UFO field, we're able to identify most of what people report into us. The experiencer side, the abduction side, of course, is a lot trickier. A lot of it relies on trying to read the witness and foretells of of things like that. Uh, For example, uh, let me just say about the hypnagogic, hypnopompic state paralysis. um, I've experienced it. You know, I've had moments where I'm paralyzed. I'm like, oh, is this an onset of uh, some sort of encounter? And then I'll just sort of fade out of it. And I'm like, no, I think that's that thing that people talk about. There was on ABC Seeing is Believing a bunch of years ago, a program uh, that I was very briefly part of on the show, a woman by the name of Susan Clancy, who is uh, a very critical investigator of the phenomena. I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say investigator because she didn't really have much in the way of facts straight. She said what these people are experiencing is a sleep paralysis because I've had sleep paralysis and I know what it's like. So who's the authority? I, I've experienced it. I understand it. There, there's certainly, like in all aspects of life, people make stuff up about their life all the time in every manner of possibility. Whatever the topic is, there's a chance somebody's going to tell you something where they just make it up or they were confused about something. And this phenomena is no different. The thing about the experiencer phenomena that's useful in, in determining whether or not there's something more to it is that a lot of people who have this experience just don't have it once. Kind of an inside joke is that the, that they're frequent flyers. <laughs> just to pick on me, I guess. If you were to say, oh, that thing that happened when you were 
four, maybe that was a sleep paralysis thing. My response was that there was an extended episode to that. It wasn't just some odd feeling in the middle of the night. However, I have a scar from a thing that happened to me when I was seven. I have a experience uh, from my early 20s where me and a girl both had this encounter at the same time. In my senior year of high school, me and two buddies were sitting in a car at night and this blue ball of light arced over the car at about the height of two telephone poles, followed by a white ball of light that ping-ponged across the entire sky. And then this red light that appeared in the middle of the sky grew to about the size of the full moon and shrank. And we all three saw it. I went to work the next day to tell my coworkers, and a coworker told me about the UFO he had seen the night before and said it was a blue ball of light. There are a lot of times where if somebody is an experiencer, other people will come into the picture at some point and witness or possibly even participate in portions of what that primary experiencer is going through. That's the stuff that, of course, gets the most attention, and it should, because you can't just say, oh, look at that, that's sleep paralysis. Those uh, three guys all fell asleep in the car at the same time and all had the same strange vision. You know, that's not likely. From the early days of flying saucers, ufology has evolved and continues to evolve, as we have people from disparate fields such as aviators, meteorologists, sleep experts, hypnotists, psychiatrists, and physicists offering answers to various aspects of the seemingly unexplained. But with such a diverse array of experts and phenomenon, I asked Gregor Kigian if there are parameters as to what actually constitutes UFO research. Those parameters that you describe, there is no set consensus on what those parameters are, which is why the whole field of UFO study ufology has been really open-ended and it's also gets to the point of why so much of the literature was marked by and has historically been marked by a lot of divisiveness a lot of uh, fractiousness because people have very different ideas about it there were people who believed for instance that it was possible to have contact and there still are people have contact with alien and alien worlds through kind of uh, spiritual transportation and teleportation or at least mental tele- telepathic transportation there are people who believe aliens have landed there are people who believe that's ridiculous mm-hmm. and there's some people who believe that in fact yes that in fact the aliens may in fact be demons in cahoots with satan right. you, you have this really diverse group of, of people with very diverse ways of thinking about it and so it's been relatively open-ended over the years and and some take a very materialistic approach and others feel that that's a very limited way of looking at it. After decades of secrecy, under pressure from, among others, the late Senator Harry Reid, the US government has recently released footage of mysterious objects caught on camera by the military. Fucking drawn on, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 out of the west. Oh, thing, dude. That's, it's rotating. The release of this information has offered the experience some hope we may be entering a new phase of more serious and transparent research at the government level. But the new footage has also caught the interest of sceptics, such as Robert Schaefer, who has his own theories on it. That photo that we've all seen, of the, they call it the tic-tac, and there's a you know, plane kind of at an angle, and it looks like you know the, this thing is off there, this little black-looking 
blurry thing in the distance. That's not what they saw. That's not what the pilots saw. It was taken like two hours later. There's no video of the so-called Tic Tac. There's only a witness description. They were told there was something on radar at a particular location up at 30,000 feet. So they go there to this location, and they're approximately 30,000 feet. Nothing there, nothing at all. So they say, well, what's happened? So they start looking around, looking around. Then they look down, they look at the water. Oh, there's a disturbance in the water. Uh, and then that, they, in, they envisioned it as being, you know, coming up out of the water. But that's hard to, to tell, you know, if you're directly above something, looking down at it. Um, and it was just kind of round or tic-tac shape. You know, seriously, they could have seen either a submarine coming up, because the Navy operates submarines there, but also whales. There's a tourist industry in San Diego where they take people out on boats to look at whales in the same area that, you know, this was. And I suspect, you know, they get there, they're disappointed. There's no UFO anywhere in the sky. Well, let's look down at the water. Oh, there's a disturbance in the water. Yeah, it's a whale coming up. It swims around a little bit, goes back down and disappears. They interpret that as meaning, oh my gosh, it shot off at a million miles an hour, or maybe it just went down where you couldn't see it. So, I mean, I think there's a more reasonable explanation. And the other one, one of those others, that's so-called go fast, it's just like a little round thing that looks like you really can't see what it is, just a little white round thing. And it appears to be going past them very fast, but... I mean, this is such a simple thing, and you could there all the analysis of this, and you can find it on Metabank and elsewhere. That it's simply a parallax effect. In other words, if I'm riding in a car and I see a tree and I go by a tree, it looks like the tree is going backwards. But I know the tree is not going backwards because I can see the ground and everything. But up to there, if this is an object in the air, they're moving like 400 miles an hour in this, you know, forward, and this thing is moving in the opposite direction. And it appears actually to be moving rather slowly, like, I don't know, 20 miles an hour or something. They're calling it to go fast. It looks like it's going fast with respect to the water. It's just a parallax effect. You're just passing it. It's like halfway between you and the water. It appears to be moving backwards because you are moving forward. Such a simple thing. And yet the so-called uh, uh, Pentagon UFO team couldn't figure this out. I can't imagine why. Did they never take geometry? You know, <laughs> it's, right. It's very simple. It, it, it really makes you wonder. It doesn't make you wonder. You know for sure that they have no expertise in photography, in optics, in physics, anything like that. So, you know, it, it makes you think, well, the government is spending money on this kind of thing. In talking to my guests, I actually found it refreshing that while the ufologists you see on TV are often portrayed as wide-eyed individuals who seemingly believe anything, the credible researchers investigating the ongoing UFO reports all approach these matters with a pragmatic realism and a healthy dose of skepticism. But it's also apparent that in the absence of hard evidence for the skeptics, as well as many experiences, it's a matter of faith. You believe it or you don't, but neither side has produced concrete evidence to settle every case.
Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.